Well, good morning. My name is John Allen. Welcome to Risen Church. It's great to see everybody. Um, we are going to be continuing through our series in the book of John this morning, but before we dive in, I want to give you a little update on uh, some things we've been doing. We uh, are strategically, uh, we talked about this last week, that we've been strategically positioned um, to not only pray for a, a number of local churches in Ukraine, but to also partner and give sacrificially and generously to these disciple-making, kingdom-advancing churches in the midst of a pretty difficult circumstance. And so we've uh, prayerfully decided that this past week, uh, everything given to Risen between Sunday and Saturday would be uh, given to these partner churches um, in the midst of this crisis. And so I am honored to share that just this past week, we will be, uh, as of yesterday, we'll, we will be giving just over $21,000. We praise God for that. This is not, I, look, we're not a big, huge megachurch. So, like, I, I, I really believe that God is going to use this and it's going to go a long way. Like, it's an honor to do this. Like, there's a lot of generosity in this. And so it's such an honor to share life in Christ with you and these brothers and sisters in Ukraine. And um, I was reminded of 2 Corinthians 8. Uh, that as the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthian church, and he says this, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that's been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in the severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So it wasn't a rich church. They were the ones struggling, and yet they were the ones giving. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. And so again, we're not a huge, like, overflowing church with money trying to figure out what to do with all the money, right? Um, but again, verse 4, it says, begging us earnestly. This is what it says. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God. So, um, or, or God to us. So, like the Macedonian churches... I love how many people in, in Risen have been so thankful for the opportunity to give. Like, I love that. And so in the next verses, Paul even calls the, this an act of grace. This giving is an act of grace. And he tells the Corinthians that they, they he, he, so he's talking about the Macedonian church, but he's speaking and writing this letter to the Corinthian church, right? And so he tells the Corinthians that they excel in every area, and then he encourages them to excel in this act of grace or the grace of giving even more and, and to do it as well. And so in other words, he calls them to grow in the grace of giving and to tap into the heart of God and that sacrificial generosity towards his people and his kingdom. And so in Philippians 4.17, he even tells the church that there's, their generosity is uh, fruit, like their generosity as a church was fruit that increases to their credit. I love that. So he called the gifts that they sent a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And he says, verse 19, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And so I want you to know that, again, as a church, we don't have an extra $21,000 just lying around right? We're a young church, and we got a lot of needs in front of us, but I believe with all my heart that the currency of the kingdom is faith, amen? And so God has strategically, again, positioned us to align with his heart in this way as good stewards of the resources that ultimately belong to him. And so we're faithful 
that he's going to continue to provide all that we need and even in abundance. And so we believe in the biblical principle of giving our first and best, right? So it's, it's the biblical principle of giving our first and best, not simply our leftovers, right? Like that actually requires faith. And honestly, it's God's divine method of deliverance from the God of money. It's how he does it. We're not giving to get. We're giving because we've been given everything in Christ, and we lean into him and trust him. And so um, he is and always has been our provider. And so we seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, and we trust that all else will be added unto us. And so, again, you often hear these principles as, as it applies to individuals, but I believe it also applies to us as a church. Okay? And so uh, we're literally putting our money where our mouth is in this. And so um, I believe that this generosity is going to be multiplied both practically in loving those in need now and establishing healthy and growing local churches throughout the region in Ukraine and beyond to the ends of the earth. And so again, I, we're not necessarily a mega church, but I, I do think the faith attached to this gift is mega faith. And so I think it's going to be pretty effective. Um, so thank you. And uh, yeah, I, I'm excited to see what the Lord will continue to do in and through this and in and through our church in Virginia Beach as well. So um, all right. There's your sermon before the sermon. Here we go. John 4. Um, as I mentioned, we've been walking through the Gospel of John and our series called Sharing Life Like Christ. And so again, Risen Church exists to share life in Christ, our risen Lord, with each other, our city, and beyond. Right? So this series is designed to take a deep look at the way Jesus interacts with people and to see how he shares life with specific people throughout the Gospel of John. That's what we've been looking at. And so just in the past few weeks, we've seen a lot of these common characteristics that have come to the surface here that are highlighted about the way that Jesus interacts with people. And so we've seen these themes rise to the surface about how not only he wants to interact with you, but how he desires to interact through you with those around you. Because as we've already seen, when we truly experience life in Christ, the natural response is to share that life with others around us. Right? So to go and tell and to invite others to come and see and to bring people and introduce them to the very source of light and life itself, who is Jesus Christ. But the way that we share this life in Christ is 100% predicated on the way you've experienced this life in Christ. Christ. In other words, you can't share life like Christ if you've not ever experienced life in Christ. To try anything else is just to try and like, well, just empty works. It's just to try and uh, just not good enough. That's why we sing, let it overflow. We talk about what that looks like because it's not just some empty religion or some branding and expanding and endeavor to like draw a crowd or grow an organization. It's always been about the overflow of an authentic encounter with Jesus himself. So our passage this morning is in John 4 really puts that on display through the interaction between Jesus and this woman at the well. Right now, often this passage is presented as a sort of like example of how to do evangelism, Right? 
Anybody ever heard a sermon like that? In some ways, you can get another one this morning, right? Like, <laughs> it's good, but often people look at this and they think, okay, this is how Jesus shares the gospel with the lost, and so I should do it just like that, right? And I love the heart there, right? That's beautiful. Like, yes, we should share life like Christ. It's the literal title of this series, right? <laughs> so, however... As we've said, each week we can't share life like Christ until we share life in Christ. And so what I want you to see here, and honestly, if you get nothing else from this passage this morning, here's what I want you to get. You ready? This one's real simple. You are the woman at the well. You are the woman at the well. In this story, you're not Jesus. You're the woman Like, it's so easy to skip through this or gloss over the story and apply it as though we are the Savior to the lost. Like, they need us. Like, they need Jesus. You and I are the woman in this passage. And if you've received the gift of God and the living water, as this woman does, then you are also the born-again recipients of his grace who've tasted and seen and go and tell and say, come and see. Like, that's what fuels this thing. It's not trying to be the Savior and Messiah. It's because you've met him, experienced him, and been saved by him. And so you want to introduce him. Like, one of the most paralyzing things is because we think that in order to share the gospel with somebody, we have to be perfect. You don't. That's why it's called witnessing. Unless you think you're Jesus, then it's a problem. Like that's why we sing things like living water deep within me, saturate my soul like a river, break the levee and let it overflow. Like if you want to get fuel for witnessing and testifying to this, lean into his love. I could never have too much of your love, your love, your love. When you see that, then it's just like, look at him, not look at me. Right? And so, again, when you experience this kind of life in Christ, that's when you become a conduit of it to the world around you. That's when you overflow in sharing life like Christ. But it's always important to remember that we're not Jesus. We're the woman saying, come and see. And there, there's no room for superiority there because as the 16th century martyr John Bradford put it, but for the grace of God, there go I. So we're going to be in John 4, 1 through 14 here. Um, and to help you track with me, uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing again. That's why Heather did a fantastic job reading that for us. Um, but I've broken this interaction so you can track with me as we go through this. I've broken this interaction with Jesus and the woman at the well into four sections, or, or really four scenes. Right? And so the first scene is called Weary Yet Willing. And the second is bitter waters. And the third is Jesus Jiu-Jitsu. And yes, that is spelled with J-E-W. Did you get it? Yeah. <laughs> look, you, look, I'll say it's just who I am. Just going to have to deal with it. And then the, the fourth is the feast of worship. Okay? So let's start with the first scene here, weary yet willing. So Jesus has left Judea 
which is where he interacted with Nicodemus in chapter 3, right? We looked at that last week. And so he's headed north for Galilee. And so the Samaritans, um, Samaria was in between uh, Galilee and Judea. And so uh, he had to, well, this was part of the route, or it was in the way in some sense, right? And so the Samaritans were actually a racially mixed group of partly Jewish and partly Gentile ancestry, or those that don't know God, okay? Which means that for generations, they had rejected their covenant with God in order to marry whomever they wanted, even if they were unequally yoked pagans who had fully rejected God. So these are covenant people of God who have chosen their ways over his ways. This is Samaria. So the result, as you would imagine, was generations of confusion about what is true and a sense of shame as it relates to their rejection of their covenant with God. They'd even twisted the scriptures to fit their own agenda over the years. Like, I, I, I don't want to water this down. A lot of people miss the power of some, the Samaritans uh, or, or the stories around Samaria and the Samaritans because uh, often people portray the Samaritans as though they're these innocent victims, they're outcasts, yes, but they're not innocent outcasts. But God is upset with the fact that they've been separated from the rest of Israel. We can't miss that. But the truth is, they were the ones who separated themselves from Israel because of their own desires and compromises. That's what's happening here. It's important to understand this. That the Samaritans, as a culture, had rejected God, and the Jews realized how dangerous it was to associate with such compromise. So when Jews would make this particular journey, they would often go completely around Samaria and avoid it altogether. But Jesus doesn't. In fact, in verse 4, it tells us that he had to pass through Samaria. Now let's get something straight. Jesus doesn't have to do anything. Okay? He could go around it if he wanted to. Honestly, like let's face it, Jesus could go over it if he wanted to. Like this is a guy that walked on water, right? So he could, he could walk over it even, right? So this is telling us that he, he, doesn't, he doesn't pass by Samaria. He turns towards them. He sees them. And I think the point here in verse 4 implies a divine appointment. Like a father has an appointment for Jesus to keep in Samaria. And so Jesus comes to this well just outside of this little Samaritan town, and it's about the sixth hour, which means noon. And at noon in the Middle East means it's hot. Okay? And Jesus is wearied from his journey. And again, Look, that is not a small statement. Like, remember, remember what we're talking about, okay? Chapter 1 just told us that Jesus is God in the flesh. The only begotten God from the Father. Like, chapter 2 told us that he, he turned water into wine at Cana, and then Jerusalem, in Jerusalem, he told the people that he'd rise uh, or raise up the torn down temple in three days. Right? In chapter 3, Jesus even claimed to be the Son of Man upon which the angels ascend and descend from heaven. 
Like he's the only begotten son from the father. The one John the Baptist said was the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right? And John the Baptist claimed that he is the one who above all comes from heaven. God in the flesh. But here in chapter 4, this God man is tired. He's wearied in the heat of the day. Guys, this is probably one of the most profound mysteries in all of eternity. He's 100% God, and he's also 100% human. What? I don't get that. I'm like, 50%? No. 50 plus 50 is 100. 100% God, 100% man. His humanity in this is depicted here in its most raw form, and yet he is no less creator and king of the entire universe. If that does hard for you to comprehend, it's because you're not God, right? And yet it's a truth that's articulated to us throughout the gospel. And so he rests here, and he waits, and he waits beside a well. But it's not just any well. It's Jacob's well, and it's in Samaria, Now, Jacob, you may know, was one of the patriarchs of all Israel in the Old Testament. In fact, his name means trickster, before it was eventually changed to Israel by God, right? His name meant trickster. God changed it to Israel. Now, the first portion of Jacob's life was characterized by the striving to attain God's favor and blessing, And he was doing whatever he could in his own strength to obtain God's favor and blessing. Even though God declared his blessing over his life, even when he was still in his mother's womb, Jacob spent the first portion of his life stressing and striving and deceiving people in order to attain something God had already given him. Like this is the story of Jacob. His early life was wrecked by insecurity and anxiety and shame and guilt. I preached a whole series on this a while back called Stressing for a Blessing. It was the life of Jacob. And he eventually surrenders his life to the Lord's love, and he places his trust in God rather than his own strength. And then he receives rest and true blessing. So it's no coincidence here that this well in Samaria of people trying to obtain blessing from God while rejecting the ways of God is called Jacob's well. And so Jesus, wearied by the journey, perhaps even wearied by his journey with these wayward people over the centuries, God in the flesh sits beside the well of Jacob and he waits patiently for this divine appointment. This is the God who enters into our circumstance, even in the heat of it all. He's wearied by the journey, and yet he's willing to meet us where we are. As Revelation 3.20 put it, he is the God who stands at the door and knocks. Scene two, bitter waters. Suddenly this woman shows up. She's a Samaritan woman, and she comes to this well in the heat of the day to draw water. Now that's a horrible time to draw water from a well in the Middle East, right? Like the only real reason that she would have done this at noon instead of the cool of the morning or the cool of the evening was because she was trying to avoid the other women. More than likely, it's because of her reputation with men. 
maybe even her reputation or history with the other women's men. It wouldn't have been a huge city. People would have known. So she's living in this shame, hiding, insecure, isolated, and even finding comfort in her isolation because that's what shame does. But as she approaches, there's this man waiting beside the well. And he's not just any man. It's a Jewish man. Even a Jewish man of some repute, clearly. Maybe even a rabbi of some kind. It would have been really intimidating for her. Maybe she thought about turning away. Maybe she thought about waiting for him to leave. But she was thirsty. Say thirsty. She needed water. And it was this relentless thirst that causes her to press through and to draw near. Like his knowing eyes would have been like flames of fire on her. Like I wonder if she could even sense his compassion or her shame only allowed her to sense her deserved judgment. Her only real solace would have been her confidence that this Jewish man surely isn't going to address her, right? Like, after all, she literally represents the waywardness of God's people. And yet, Jesus, wearied by the journey, again, perhaps wearied by the figurative mountain of separation between them, addresses her and he asks her for a drink. And she responds in shock. Like, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Not just a woman, a woman of Samaria. In verse 10, John 4, verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. But she's like, you don't even have a bucket, right? And the well is deep. Like, how are you going to get any water? So she's thinking about things in purely physical terms, right? And so she still articulates, though. Even though she's missing it, she's still articulating the deep spiritual need of her own soul. Like, there's this massive distance between her and Jesus. Like, the chasm between this woman and God is like the chasm between them and the well and the water that seems so far out of reach. And yet, that's, that distance is the source of this woman's every issue. And so then she asks if Jesus is greater than the patriarch Jacob, who gave them the well. In verse 13, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. In other words, Jesus is saying, yeah, I am the better Jacob. Verse 15, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Again, she's still thinking about some physical water source that Jesus knows about, right? But he's talking about something way deeper. He's talking about the true living water, the river of life that flows directly from God the Father. 
And so this, this, this term, living water, is actually a, a reference to fresh flowing water as opposed to stagnant bitter waters filled with toxic bacteria. So Jeremiah 2.13 puts it like this. It says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now, a cistern was like a massive water reservoir, right, for like a whole community. And so he's saying that by rejecting God, his people have hewn out these massive water reservoirs, but they're broken. They're leaky. They don't work. They won't hold water. And so they never satisfy. They just leave you thirsty. And historically, even in the ancient Near East, I I love this, broken cisterns, or like these water reservoirs, when they were broken they, 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 and they wouldn't hold water, they would become either ancient trash sites, like ancient dumpsters, or often they were even used as prisons. And so instead of being the conduits of life for everyone around them, they became stagnant, cut off, and bitter. Rotten prisons of decay, cut off from their source and their purpose. And this is what describes this woman. She's thirsty, but she's rejected the source. She longs for living water, but she's been looking for it in all the wrong places. But she's so thirsty, and she's so tired. And so she asks, sir, give me this water. Now, most people would probably just jump right into grace here, right? But Jesus knows she's not ready yet. Jesus knows there's way more going on in her heart. He knows that she needs a new heart, a new cistern, in a way. Right? And he loves her way too much to let the truth fester in the dark. And so, verse 16, Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You're right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. So Jesus doesn't compromise here, and it's because he loves her too much to compromise here. He loves her enough to go there, and he exposes the bitter, unsatisfying waters that she's been drinking from. Maybe this means that she'd been with five men who were her husbands, or or, or five men who were actually husbands to other women, right? Or maybe she's been married five different times, and now she's living with a man who she's not married to. Either way, Jesus doesn't ignore it because there's symptoms of the bitter toxicity that she's been drinking from. Like she's rejected the source. She's rejected the true God and hewn out her own ways. Like she's been ruled by her desire to be known, to be loved, to be accepted, and to be protected. But she's rejected the only one who can actually provide those things for her. And then she's fallen into the counterfeit embrace of the world which is toxic. She not only represents the people of Samaria, she represents every last one of us. But for the grace of God, there go I. Like she represents all who have broken covenant with the true God and the true king by looking to anything or anyone other than him to fulfill what only he can in Christ. So she's the whore of Babylon presented in Revelation. The one who rejects her true husband by indulging in counterfeit saviors, all while seducing others into her affair with the world. 
Preach the series through Revelation. That one got intense. Right? Romans 1.32 puts it like this. Like, this is what shame does. Like, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is what shame does. Even though she knew her error, she desired the false love and affirmation more than she actually desired God. And yet, and yet, here he is. And here she is, face to face with the true bridegroom himself. In fact, remember, this is Jacob's well. And if you know anything about the story of Jacob, it's beside a well that he meets his bride, Rachel. This is not a coincidence. There's a meta-narrative playing out here and an underlying redemptive story that's on display for us all. This woman represents us all. She is the prostitute Rahab of Jericho, rescued from her adulterous life with the enemies of God, yet rescued and grafted into the covenant family and the royal bloodline of Christ himself. She's the widow Ruth of, of the disinherited Moabite nation who, by faith, clung to the promises of God's covenant and was redeemed through marriage and again grafted into the covenant family and royal bloodline of Christ himself. Like she's, This woman represents the wayward whore of Babylon depicted in Revelation we just talked about. And yet, by receiving the gift of God in Christ and the living waters of the Spirit, she's redeemed and she's recreated and she's grafted into the covenant family of God, the church who is the bride of Christ, beloved and beautified by Jesus a holy race, a chosen nation, the royal priesthood of all believers. This is what Jesus is offering this woman, and this is what Jesus has offered each one of us. Again, we are the woman at the well. Because this is the gospel, that God became a man, and he lived the life we couldn't live, and he died the death that we deserve to die, and he conquered death in the grave, and he paved the way to eternal life through the resurrection, to eternal life with God the Father, and it's an eternal life that starts now, not just one day when we die, right? It's an eternal life now, that begins now, the moment we accept him as our Lord and Savior and we're filled with his spirit, and it indwells us, and it overflows within us like the river of life flowing from the very throne of God to the world around us. This is the living water that Jesus is offering. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the kingdom. But it requires turning from the bitter and toxic waters of our counterfeit sin and receiving the cup of his grace. Now for the next scene. Jesus jujitsu. <laughs> Verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Okay? So she's just been like, Whoa, okay. Prophet. Like it may not have been that formal, right? She probably wasn't, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Like there's something lost in translation here. But she's saying, I, you're, There's more going on in you than just random guy by the well, right? She's affirming that what he's saying is true. And so he's offering her pure living water, total redemption, and eternal life. And she acknowledges the truth of everything he said, but there's still a mountain of distance between them. Jesus has just spoken right to the depth of her, and she tries to dodge it all entirely, and she starts talking about theology. Verse 20, 
Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Not this mountain, but that mountain. So, like, if this feels out of place, it's because it is. And yet, this is exactly what shame does. You see, it's way easier to externalize God to a system of beliefs that you can externalize rather than allow him to engage you on a relational, vulnerable, intimate level. Something you can argue with. Something you can detach from. Something you can be cold to. Shame will make you do all kinds of theological, philosophical gymnastics to avoid being seen and known. So she calls attention to the different religious perspectives that define Samaritans and Jews. And she uses this as her reason for pulling back. It's like when somebody's genuinely encountered by the grace of God in Christ, but then they pull back and they say that, you know, it's because they grew up Greek Orthodox or Catholic or something, or some other religious label that they don't really understand. And they throw out that as a barrier to pull back and hide in shame. But Jesus doesn't take the bait. He doesn't, he, doesn't take, he doesn't buy into any of this misdirection. He sees right through it. And he uses it to lead her right to the heart of God like a spiritual jiu-jitsu move. Watch this. Verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Remember, the Bible often depicts mountains as barriers between God and people. And here Jesus is saying that, that barrier is about to be a non-issue. He does, he does still acknowledge that the Samaritans were the ones in the wrong, but he doesn't dwell on it because it's not an issue anymore. He's not trying to just rub her face in it. He's moving on to what matters. Verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. I want you to hear this. Because when you see it, you're going to be like, oh, the Father is seeking such people to worship him. True worshipers. The mountains are a non-issue. And the mountain separation between this woman and Jesus is a mountain called shame. That's the real reason she's throwing out all this misdirection. And he just used it to draw her into the arms of the Father. Remember, he's offered her living waters. And she's still trying like, so hard to come up with reasons to reject it. Again, this is what shame does. Ed Welch, author, put it like this. He said, shame is the deep sense that you are inherently flawed, unacceptable, and unworthy of love because of something you've done, something done to you, or something associated with you. Right? Brad Hambrick is a friend of mine in, in North Carolina and a pastoral counselor. He, he goes even deeper with this, and he says, he, he compares guilt and shame and, and what the difference are. He says, guilt is like a stain on a shirt. Right? It can be removed by washing it, although it's probably very difficult. But shame is more like a disfigured face. It feels like a permanent part of who you are now. And if you had a disfigured face, even if the disfigurement had nothing to do with the choices you've made, you still wouldn't want to show your face for fear of what others might do or say in response. Shame says, I am defective. It's about identity. 
I am defective. I am damaged. I am broken. I am flawed. I'm dirty. I'm ugly. I'm impure. I'm disgusting. I am unlovable. I'm weak. I'm pitiful. I'm insignificant. I'm worthless. And I am unwanted. It's identity. This is the shame that would have branded the Samaritan woman's life. And it's the reason she dodges the offer of living water from Jesus. It's shame. Shame is her greatest obstacle in receiving Christ's living water. And it's the greatest barrier between true repentance and Jesus. For so many people, think about this. The word for repentance is the Greek word metanoia. And it means to turn away from sin and turn towards God. So the truth is, what we need to repent of most of all, most of the time, often, is our rejection of his love. To repent of your shame is to repent of your defiance to his delight. Like, it's one thing to reject him because you don't want him. It's another to reject him because you don't deserve him. Of course you don't deserve him. Of course you don't deserve him. This is not about convincing you that you deserve his love and grace. You don't. None of us do. But that's the power of it all. And that's the point. That's what makes it grace. You don't deserve it. It's not about what you think. It's not about what I think. It's not about... You loving you, it's about him. It's about his love for you. And, and, and it's, it's about, it, well, that's it. It's about his love for you. Like some of you in here today need to repent of resisting his love. You need to repent of your resistance to his call of sonship or daughterhood on your life. You need to repent of your shame. Because you're still trying to earn his love. You're still convinced that you don't deserve it and therefore can't or won't receive it. Maybe it feels hypocritical to you, but that's because you still think you can earn it. Maybe your idea of Christianity has been primarily motivated by shame. I mean, after all, look, shame is an effective motivator when it comes to behavior, right? You can get people to do all kinds of things through shame. Like, shame will make you act different. It'll maybe even act better, at least on the surface. But ultimately, it's just a band-aid over a bullet wound. And it's a form of empty, false religion. You see, shame fosters like a hireling relationship with God. It's a slave-master, employee-boss kind of performance-oriented works-righteousness mentality. And it'll create a deep fear of failure and perfectionism. Because if you fail, you come face-to-face with your deepest fear, which is your shame. If you fail, it just confirms your deepest fear that you truly are worthless. But if you succeed, then you've proven your shame wrong, which just turns into pride. That's not healing. It's just another cycle on the pride-shame merry-go-round. And it's tormenting to the soul. When people live in those kind of cycles, it only fosters a deep hatred of themselves and that never-ending sense of self-criticism that eventually spills out against everyone else around them too. We call those people arrogant. The truth is, they're ashamed. 
But Jesus meets this woman right in the midst of those cycles of torment. And he uses her sense of distance to lead her right to the heart of God. He says, all you've prayed is wrong and all you've claimed is gone. And yet, the Father is seeking such people. <laughs> like he totally is going to sit on her. He says, oh, everything you've done is all messed up and jacked up. But the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Wayward people, people who have worshipped on the wrong mountains, people who have been drinking from false fountains of shame and pride. The Father is seeking those who don't know to worship him in spirit and truth. The Father is seeking people like you to worship him. He's seeking the wayward, the lost, the broken, the confused, those who have their categories mixed up, those who've lost sight of who he is and they've run to other lovers. These are the kinds of people the Father is seeking to worship him. These are the kinds of sheep that God leaves the 99 in search of to rescue and to redeem to take the adulteress and make her a bride to take the slave and make him a son like look at verse 25 the woman said to him look at this she does it again i know the messiah he says the woman says to him i know that messiah is coming he who is called christ when he comes he will tell us all these things she tried to dodge him again but she runs right into him it's like she's looking for him without looking to him. Again, this is exactly what shame does. Like you can almost imagine her trying so hard to avoid eye contact with him. She knows she needs a hero. She knows she needs to be rescued from herself. She doesn't need somebody to change the atmosphere around her. She needs somebody to change the atmosphere inside her. She's got a thirst problem. And Jesus knows not only that he has the answer, he is the answer. Verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Guys, this is the cry of my heart as a pastor. This is it. This ought to be the main idea of the sermon anyway. It's like everything is that you go to the source. You go straight to the source, straight to Jesus. No mediators, no gimmicks, no self-help books, just straight to the source of living water in Christ. Like This is why personal prayer, this is why quiet times and, and, and with Jesus in his word, in worship, personal worship time, in your car, in your office, just beholding his glory, going before his throne, asking him what he thinks of you. But to be at peace with him and just praise him and adore him and delight in him and let him delight in you. And yes, men, this is for you too. It's not just for women. It's not just for the adulterous woman. It's for the, the wayward, slave-oriented, performance-oriented, works-righteousness guy. Which, P.S., our hearts are like, idle factories for this stuff so it's just because why we need to go to him every day and say what do you think of me? what's my name what do you declare about me what do you think this is who he is the father is seeking such people to worship him in spirit and in truth and not just here on sunday not just in community groups throughout the week but in your room again in your office driving in your car throughout the day like move your bible app in front of your social media app there's something practical for you. <laughs> Put the Bible app in front of it. Go to the source. 
Let his spirit change the atmosphere inside of you. Like drink deeply of his living water. When you do, then and only then can you become an overflowing conduit of his love to the world around you. And when that happens, it'll just naturally flow out of you. Which leads me to the final scene here, the feast of worship. So the disciples come back after going to get some food and they're like, okay, this is different. You know, Jesus is hanging out by himself with a scandalous Samaritan woman. Like, little, little, little different. But verse 28, it says, So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and they were coming to him. And so there's that theme again, right? Like those who truly meet Jesus introduce others to Jesus. Come and see. Come and see the one who knows me and actually makes me feel known. Come and meet the one I've been searching for in all the wrong places. She's not just saying come and see a man who did a miracle. She's saying come and see a man who knows me, who sees me. My whole life I've been trying to be seen, to be known, to be affirmed and accepted and loved, to know and be known, but all of those things were just broken cisterns and counterfeit saviors. Come meet the one in whom I fit, the one I was designed for. Come and see the relationship that puts all other relationships in their rightful place. And probably my favorite part of this story is that she left her jar. She never even got any water from the well. You see that? She left it. She never even did it because she's not thirsty anymore. In Christ, she's received living water. Jesus never got that drink either. Remember, he was weary. Not anymore. In fact, verse 31, the disciples return and they've brought Jesus some food. But then in verse 32, he says, I have food to eat that you don't know about. And they're like, did you like... He already ate. There's a Wendy's around here we don't know about. And Jesus says, verse 34, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Whoo! I don't have time to preach this down, but I'd want to so bad. Because it, it even, he even goes into to, to, to talking about how his father's harvest and the fruit of that harvest is, is the food that he's been eating from. It's the fruit of the Samaritan harvest. It's the fruit of eternal life. He's worshiping as he brings in the harvest of the Samaritans, and it's a feast to him. Like just doing the will of the Father is his feast. It's his reward. He's seeing those who were far from God inherit eternal life, and it fills his soul. Like this is the labor and the harvest and reward that he's inviting all of his disciples into, including you. Like, it's not so we can get material things or status or earthly blessings. It's so we can rejoice with God the Father when others experience the love and the grace and redemption that we've experienced because they know now know the grace and love that we know. Like, this is why, again, this is why the prosperity gospel is so jacked up. We don't give to get things. We do the will of the Father so he will bless. We don't do the will of the Father so he's going to bless us with stuff. We do it because we love his mission and we love him and we delight in things that he delights in. Right? And he loves the fruit of the harvest, which is the lost going from death to life and those far from him becoming his children. This is what Jesus is feasting on. The Great Commission to make disciples who make disciples. Look how the story ends. Verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. 
He told me all that I ever did. And so when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And again, come and see and stay. Goes back a couple weeks ago. Themes. So when the Samaritans came in, they asked him to stay with them, and they stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Guys, there's nothing like the fruit of this kind of harvest. It's the greatest thing you can ever experience on this side of eternity, and it's the honor that we have in partnering together in this gospel. It's a feast. Like, even when you're weary, you can feast on this. Like, it's the true living water and the bread of life. Like, I, I, I'm, just lift up your eyes to see his harvest, even when you're weary. Like, don't grow weary in this type of well-doing. And you won't if you're looking to him. When I think about the most difficult and most weary points in ministry, especially in church planning... God's actually been really gracious and I'd say merciful to me um, in those times where my soul's like, God, is it even worth it? Like, is it even, like, what am I doing? <laughs> There's been moments like that. Not recently. <laughs> but at every time, he's, he's so clear to give this unavoidable answer. It's like, he's just like, watch this. And somebody just gets radically saved. Radically. And it's just like, God's just going, this is what it's about. This is what it's about. And just one, totally worth it. Totally worth it. That's the reward. And then go get one more. And then one more. And then one more. And then tell them to go get one more. Build a church, expand the kingdom, and go to the ends of the earth doing it. Hallelujah. That's living water. The true reward comes from enjoying the harvest with him. That's the fruit, and it comes with a nourishment and a rejuvenation that I'm telling you no physical food can even compare with. He's the good shepherd who leads the 99 for the one. This is our feast. This is our worship. This is our commission. Let's drink deeply from living water and let it overflow into the world around us. Let's pray. God, we thank you. God, we thank you. God, we, we thank you that we can look to you. God, we thank you that you are the living water and that you are all that we need in this life. <laughs> God, that you're all that we need for eternity. And so, Father, we pray that um, whatever fountains, whatever false fountains or whatever things that we're looking to for our satisfaction other than you, Lord, I pray that this morning you would uh, give us the true living water, that you would draw us close to you, that you would um, give us just that sense in our heart, that pulling, that craving, that thirst, that hunger for you and your goodness and your glory. And Lord, I pray that you would put it on display and that we would drink deeply of it this morning as we dive into your word. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come. We say, come, Lord, meet us here, transform us. God, we, we thank you that we can gather together. We thank you that we can come before you. And Lord, I pray that whatever barriers might be between us and you, whatever things that we don't even know, maybe we're not even aware of why we feel an apprehension to gather together before you or to come towards you or receive you, Lord, whatever that is, Lord, I pray that you would soften our hearts, give us ears to hear what you are saying to us. 
and draw us close to you and transform us, Lord. And so, God, I also lift up this morning the, the churches, specifically even churches in Ukraine. God, we lift up um, the, the, the Josiah Venture team serving in Ukraine and, and all of the partner church, churches there. Um, and so we even specifically pray for strength and courage and protection and opportunities to expand your kingdom in and through specific by-name churches like Christ Fellowship Church, Ukrainian Bible Church, Hosanna Church, Grapevine Church, Ecclesia Church, Source of Life Church, and God's Love Church, all of these churches in Lviv. God, we lift them up to you. And so we also, Lord, we pray by name for Urban Bible Church in Urban, Ukraine, and Reconciliation Bible Church in Uman, Ukraine. And God, we lift up House of the Gospel Church in Cherkasy, Ukraine, and Philadelphia Church in Ternopil, Ukraine. God, we lift them all up, these local bodies of Christ, these local believers that are on the ground, the boots on the ground for your kingdom, God, they're caring for refugees and, and families and coordinating relief efforts and sharing the love and the life and the grace of Jesus in the midst of such uncertainty and crisis. And God, I thank you that even though the kingdoms of man may shake, that the kingdom of heaven is stable and advancing. Even in the midst of crisis, God, you are there in and through your people. And so we as brothers and sisters in Christ with them, lift them up to you. We intercede on their behalf and we ask that you would take what the enemy may meant for evil or harm and use it for good and the expansion of your kingdom, God. We love you. We thank you. We lift them up. And now, God, as I decrease, I ask that you would increase within me. I ask, Lord, that you would speak prophetically through me. And I ask that if there's anyone in here this morning that does not know you as their Lord and their Savior and the King of their heart, that they would not leave here without having fully surrendered to you as their Savior and their Lord. God, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. My name is John Allen. Welcome to Risen Church. It's good to see everybody. Um, we are continuing through our series in the book of John this morning, but before we dive in, last week I told you that God had strategically given us an opportunity specifically to partner with specific churches and, and church organizations uh, that we know to be healthy and on the ground, specifically in Ukraine uh, last week. And so not only are we uh, partnering prayerfully with these churches and this organization um, in that area, but we also had the opportunity to give. Uh, and sacrificially and generously, and so we said last week that anything given to Risen Church between uh, Sunday of last week and yesterday, Saturday, um, that it was all going to go to uh, this organization that we're partnering with and these local churches on the ground in Ukraine. Um, and so as of yesterday, I am honored and privileged to report that we will be giving just over $21,000. That is fantastic. That is, I, we are not a huge church, but I truly believe 
that that type of sacrificial generosity is going to go a long way. And it is such an honor to partner with you in this way and with these brothers and sisters in Ukraine. And so 2 Corinthians 8 is reminded of this. 2 Corinthians 8, the Apostle Paul is writing the Corinthian church, and he says this. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that's been given among the churches of Macedonia. So he's talking to the Corinthians about how these churches in Macedonia are giving to help other churches and other believers in, in struggle. And he says that if we're in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. So again, they, they gave not because they had a bunch of money left over. They gave because of their hearts. There was a sacrificial generosity, and I'm, I'm seeing that in our own church. In fact, verse 4 in in 2 Corinthians 8, it says this, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. And so again, like the Macedonian churches, I loved how many people were so excited and considered it a huge, just privilege to have the opportunity even to give uh, and and partner and support. And so... um, in the next few verses, Paul even calls their giving an act of grace and tells the, the Corinthians that they excel in every other area and then he encourages them to excel and grow in the act or the grace of giving and to continue allowing God to just generously uh, grow their heart in that grace of giving and so, um, or, or generosity. And so, in other words, he's calling them to grow in this place of generosity towards people in his kingdom as their heart just expands alongside the God of eternity's heart for his people. And so Philippians 4.17 even tells this, uh, the church that their generosity as a church was actually fruit that increases to their credit. I love that. And so he calls the gifts that they sent a, fra- a fragrant offering. He calls it a sacrifice that's acceptable and pleasing to God. And then in verse 19, he says, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And so um, again, you know, we don't have an extra $21,000 just laying around to give, right? <laughs> we're, not, we're not that church. We're a young church, and we have a, a many needs uh, in front of us. However, I want to highlight this because I believe that the kingdom, or I'm sorry, the currency of the kingdom is faith. I truly believe that. And God has strategically positioned us to align with his heart in this way as good stewards of the resources that ultimately belong to him. And so we're faithful that he will continue to provide all things in abundance for us. We not, but we're not giving to get. We're giving because we've been given everything in Christ, and we want to partner with these people. That's what we're doing. And so he doesn't need our money, right? But uh, he does want us to lean into these things and not just get so focused on our own agendas that we miss what he's doing in the world. And so um, the truth is, is that uh, you know, we believe in the biblical principle of giving our first and best, right? Um, it, it's not simply giving our leftovers, right? But that requires faith. And honestly, it's a, a God divine uh, method to deliver us from the God of money. 
That's what it's doing. That's what it is. Like he is and always has been our provider. And so we seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, and we trust that all else will be added unto us. And so um, these are the principles that you hear this a lot as a principle that's applied to people as individuals, right? You see these principles, um, like maybe not, but this is often applied, and it is applied to us as individuals. However, I want you to see that it also applies to us as a church, right? And so um, as a church, we're literally putting our money where our mouth is. <laughs> and so um, I believe this sacrificial generosity will be multiplied both practically in loving on those in need now and to establish healthy and growing local churches in and through the region in Ukraine and beyond to the ends of the earth. And so, again, we're not a mega church, but I believe the faith that's attached to this gift is mega faith, and so the kingdom effect will be great. And so... Um, Thank you. It's an honor to partner with you in this. So, now for the sermon. <laughs> um, we're going to dive into John 4. As I mentioned before, we are um, walking through the Gospel of John in our series called Sharing Life Like Christ. Now again, Risen Church exists to share life in Christ, our risen Lord, with each other, our city, and beyond. And so, this series is designed to take a deep look at the way Jesus interacts with people and to see how he shares life with specific people throughout the Gospel of John. And so just in the past few weeks, we've seen um, a lot of these common characteristics about the way that Jesus interacts with people sort of come to the surface. We're, we're seeing these themes, and we're going to continue to see these themes as we walk through this series We've seen these themes rise to the surface, and they're highlighting not only how he wants to interact with you, but also how he wants to interact through you with those around you. Because as we've already seen, when we truly experience life in Christ, the natural response is to share that life with others around us, to go and tell, and to invite others to come and see to bring people and to introduce them to the very source of light and life itself, who is Jesus Christ. That's what this is about. But the way we share this life in Christ is 100% predicated on the way we've experienced this life in Christ. In other words, you can't share life like Christ until you've experienced life in Christ. This isn't just some like empty religion. Like it's not, we're not just branding and expanding some you know, endeavor to draw a crowd or, or like to grow an organization. Like it's always been about the overflow of an authentic encounter with Jesus himself. That's what this is about. Our passage this morning in John 4 actually puts this on display really well through the interaction between Jesus and this woman at the well. Now often this passage is presented as sort of like an example on how to do evangelism. You've probably heard that before. You've probably, if you know much about this passage, you've heard it preached before, it's often preached as like a step-by-step -step on how to do evangelism. And in some ways, I'm like, that's great, right? Like, that's good. Um, but often, you know, people look at this and they think, okay, well, this is how Jesus shares the gospel with the lost, and so I should do the same thing, right? And I love the heart there. Like, yes, we should share life like Christ. That's literally the title of the series. <laughs> However, as I've said 
each week, you can't share life like Christ until you share life in Christ. And so what I want you to see here this morning, and honestly, if you get nothing else from this passage this morning, here's what I want you to get. You ready? This one's pretty simple this morning. You are the woman at the well. You are the woman at the well. In this story, you're not Jesus. You're the woman at the well. Like, it's easy to skip through this or gloss over this story and apply it as though we're the savior of the lost and they need us like they need Jesus. And we apply it to evangelism and we go to people and we're like, you know, I'm going to be Jesus to you. And I get that. Like, yes, I, you know, what would Jesus do? Be like Jesus, be like Christ, all the things. And yet at the same time, you're not the Messiah. And people don't need you. They need you to testify and witness and point to the true Savior who is Jesus Christ. It takes a lot of the pressure off. Because that means you don't have to be perfect either. Right? Oftentimes, one of the things that paralyzes us the most when sharing the gospel or talking about Jesus or pointing people to the, to the Lord or talking about it is we're afraid that we're going to screw it up or do something wrong. We're like, well, you know, I have to be Jesus in order to talk about Jesus. That's actually a false gospel. That's you thinking that you are the Savior instead of pointing to the Savior. That's not a demonstration of grace. That's just more works righteousness. Does that make sense? And so this morning, I want you to see that you are the woman at the well. You and I are the woman in this passage. And so if you've received the gift of God and living water that this woman receives, then you're also the born-again recipients of this grace. And we point everyone to him, not to ourselves. That you've tasted and seen and continue to drink deeply from the living waters of his spirit. And you bring everyone and you say, come and see. Come and see him. That's why we sing things like living water deep within me. Saturate my soul like a river. Break the levee and let it overflow. Our witness is the overflow. Right? We're not the source. We're conduits. I could never have too much of your love. That's the, that's the lyric. I could never have too much. Oh, I'm not going to sing it. But I love that song because it's like that's when you are so focused on his love and you're like, oh, Jesus is so good. And then it just overflows around you. Again, when you experience this kind of life in Christ, that's when you become a conduit of it to the world around you. Like that's when you overflow in sharing life like Christ. Because remember, Jesus is filled up with the love of the Father. Overflowing. And so it's always important to remember that we're not Jesus. We're the woman saying, come and see. There's no room for superiority there because as the 16th century martyr John Bradford put it, but for the grace of God, there go I. Right? And so we're going to be in John 4, again, verse 1 through 42 this morning. And uh, thankfully, Heather read through all of it for us. She did a great job. Um, and you know, but I, I do want you to, so I'm going to sum up a good bit of it, but um, uh, in order to track through this with me, I've broken it down into uh, four sections or four scenes, so to speak. And so uh, the first scene is called Weary Yet Willing. And then the second is Bitter Waters. And then the third is Jesus Jiu-Jitsu. And yes, that is spelled J-E-W. And 
you're just going to have to deal with me on this. It's just who I am. I realize it's over the top. Too bad. I like it. So, and then the, uh, <laughs> the, then the fourth is the feast of worship. Okay? So we're going to start with the first scene. Weary yet willing. So Jesus has just left Judea. We looked at this last week in his interaction with Nicodemus in chapter 3 of John. And he's headed for Galilee in the north, right? And so in order to get to Galilee, there is a section called Samaria. And in order to go there, you either had to go around Samaria or through Samaria in order to get to Galilee. Now, the Samaritans were a racially mixed group of partially uh, Jewish people, uh, I'm sorry, partly Jewish and partly Gentile ancestry, which means that for generations they had rejected their covenant with God in order to marry whomever they wanted, even if they were unequally yoked pagans who had fully rejected God and God's ways. Okay? That's important to understand. So the result, as you would imagine, was generations of confusion about what is true and also a sense of shame as it relates to their rejection of their covenant with God. This was Samaria and the Samaritan people. They had even twisted the scriptures to fit their own agendas. So I don't want to water this down, guys. Often people portray the Samaritans as if they're these innocent victims, like they're these outcasts in society, and they're innocent, and they're picked on, and all this other stuff. And the truth is, though, like God is upset with the fact that they've been separated from the rest of Israel. Yes, he is. But the truth is, is that they were the ones who separated themselves from Israel because of their own desire for compromise. That's the Samaritans. So it's important to understand that. The Samaritans as a culture had rejected God and the Jews actually realized how dangerous it was to associate with such compromise. And so when Jews would make this particular journey, they would often go around Samaria to avoid it altogether. And so when Jews would do this, again, it was Kind of a, it, it kind of was like a respected thing where they were just kind of like, no, we're separated from that. Like, yeah, it could get prideful, but in some ways it's just, you know, some wisdom there, right? But watch this. Jesus doesn't. Jesus goes right through Samaria. In fact, verse 4 tells us that it, he had to pass through Samaria. Now, I want to get something straight. Jesus doesn't have to do anything. He's Jesus. He doesn't have to do anything. Like, he could go around it if he wanted to. Honestly, he could go over it if he wanted to, right? Like, it's Jesus. He walks on water. He can do whatever he wants, right? Remember, he's God in the flesh, but he doesn't avoid it. He doesn't just pass them by. He turns toward Samaria. And I love this. Like I, I, so I think the point of verse 4 here implies a divine appointment. Like the Father has an appointment for Jesus to keep in Samaria. So Jesus comes to this well just outside of this little Samaritan town. It's about the sixth hour, it says, which means that it's about noon. That's what that means. And noon in the Middle East means it's hot. That's what that means. It's extremely hot, and Jesus is wearied from his journey. 
Now, that's not a small statement. I want you to catch this. Like, remember that chapter 1 just told us that Jesus is God in the flesh. He's the only begotten God from the Father, the only begotten Son of the Father. Chapter 2 told us that he turned water into wine at Cana, and then in Jerusalem, he tells people that he'd raise the torn-down temple in three days. In chapter 3, Jesus even claimed to be the Son of Man, upon which the angels ascend and descend from heaven. He's the only begotten Son from the Father, the one that John the Baptist says is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he's the one above all who comes from heaven. This is who Jesus is presented to be so far in the book of John. But here in chapter 4, this God-man is tired. He's wearied in the heat of the day. Look, this is probably one of the most profound mysteries in all of eternity. He's 100% God. And he's 100% man. He's not like 50% God and 50% man. He's 100% God and 100% human. It's like, but 50, 50 and 50 is 100, 100, 200s and two, no, 100. Like, if you think you got that figured out, you're just wrong. Right? You know why it's hard to understand? Because you're not God. But it's powerful and it's profound and it's beautiful and it's articulating something to us about who Jesus is. Okay? And so what we see here in chapter 4 is that he's tired. His humanity is depicted here in its most raw form. And yet, he's no less creator and king of the universe. The whole entire universe. And so he rests and he waits beside a well, but not just any well. It's Jacob's well, and it's in Samaria. These aren't insignificant details. Jacob was one of the patriarchs in all of Israel. In, in Old Testament, in fact, he's, his name meant trickster, but it was eventually changed by God to Israel. Now, the first portion of Jacob's life was actually characterized by striving to attain God's favor and blessing by doing whatever he could do in his own strength to obtain God's blessing. Even though God had actually declared his blessing over his life while he was still in his mother's womb. And yet Jacob's story is that he spent the first part of his entire life stressing and striving and deceiving people in order to attain a blessing in his own strength that God had already declared over him. His early life was racked by insecurity and anxiety and shame and guilt. I preached a whole series on this in the life of Jacob a while back and we called it Stressing for a Blessing. <laughs> and he eventually surrendered his life to the Lord through, in his love, and, and he placed his trust in God rather than his own strength. And that's when he received true rest and true blessing. But it's no coincidence that this well in Samaria, a place and a people trying to obtain blessing from God while rejecting the ways of God, is called Jacob's well. It's not a coincidence. And so Jesus, wearied by the journey, and perhaps even wearied by his journey with these wayward people over the centuries, is Jesus, he's God in the flesh, and he sits by the well of Jacob, and he waits patiently for this divine appointment. 
This is the God who enters our circumstance. Right? Even in the heat of all of this world, he enters in. He's wearied by the journey, and yet he's still willing to meet us where we are. As Revelation 3.20 puts it, he is the God who stands at the door and knocks. Now for scene two, bitter waters. Suddenly this woman shows up. She's a Samaritan woman, and she's come to the well in the heat of the day. She's come to the well to draw water. Now, that's a horrible time to draw water in the Middle East. Noon, right? You would normally do this in the cool of the morning or in the cool of the evening, in the afternoon at least. Not, not in the height of the heat. The only reason she would have done this at noon would have been because she's trying to avoid the other women. More than likely, it's because of her reputation with men, maybe even her reputation or history with the other women's men. So she's living in this shame, hiding. She's insecure. She's isolated. And she's even finding comfort in her isolation. Because that's what shame does. But as she approaches, she sees this man waiting beside the well. And maybe she sees him, and this is not just any man. Like a man waiting beside the well, that'd be like, oh, there's somebody there. But this isn't just any man. It's a Jewish man. And it's a Jewish man even of probably high repute, maybe even a rabbi of some kind. That would have been obvious to her. And it would have been intimidating for her. Maybe she thought about, like, turning away. Maybe she thought, like, waiting a little while, and maybe he'd leave. But she was thirsty really thirsty. Say thirsty. She needed water. And it was her relentless thirst that caused her to press through and to draw near. Now his knowing eyes would have been like flames of fire on her. Like I wonder if she could even sense his compassion or, her, or if her shame only allowed her to sense her deserved judgment. Her only real solace would have been her confidence that this Jewish man surely wouldn't address her. Like, after all, she literally represented the waywardness of God's people. And yet, Jesus, wearied by the journey, perhaps wearied by the figurative mountain of separation between them, addresses her. And he asks her for a drink. And she responds in shock. How is it that you, a Jew asked for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria. Not just a woman, a woman of Samaria. Look at verse 10, John 4, verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She's like, You don't even have a bucket. Like, how are you going to get any living water? you got nothing to draw the water with, and the well is deep. Like, how are you going to get any water? She's actually thinking about these things in purely physical terms, and yet she still articulates the deep spiritual need of her own soul here, right? There's a massive distance between her and Jesus. There's a massive distance between her and these living waters. It's as deep as that well is, and she's got no way to get it. 
The chasm between this woman and God was actually the source of every issue she had. And then she asked Jesus if he's greater than the patriarch Jacob who gave them the well. And then Jesus answers her, verse 13. He says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. In other words, Jesus is saying here, yes, I am the better Jacob. Right? Verse 15. The woman then says to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now again, she's still thinking that he's talking about some like physical water source somewhere that he, Jesus knows about, right? But he's talking about something way deeper. He's talking about the true living water, the river of life that flows directly from the Father. The term living water is actually a reference to fresh flowing water as opposed to stagnant, bitter waters that are filled with toxic bacteria. This imagery is all over the Bible. You see it in Revelation from Genesis in the garden to Revelation in the new, in the, in the heavenly Jerusalem, in the kingdom of heaven. You see the river of life in these living waters. It's all over the Bible. In Jeremiah 2.13, it says this, For many people, or sorry, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now, a cistern was like a massive water reservoir. So he's saying that by rejecting God, his people have hewn out these massive water reservoirs, but they're broken. Like they're leaky, right? They won't hold water. Like you'll never satisfy. They just leave you thirsty. And historically, and I love this, even in the ancient Near East, like broken cisterns, these massive water reservoirs that, that, that wouldn't hold water, you know, they're supposed to be br- bringing life to the communities around them. But when they were broken and wouldn't hold water, they would become ancient trash sites, like dumpsters. And sometimes they would even be used as prisons. So instead of being the conduits of life for all, they became stagnant, cut off, and bitter. Rotten prisons of decay, cut off from their source and purpose. And this is what describes this woman way too well. She's thirsty, but she's rejected the source. She longs for living water, but she's been looking for it in all the wrong places. But she's so thirsty, and she's tired. And so she asks, sir, give me this water. Now, most people right here would probably just jump right into grace, right? Just, this is time. Grace time. Encourage her time, right? We don't want to get into the sad stuff. But Jesus knows she's not ready yet. Jesus knows there's way more going on here. He knows she, knew, she needs a new heart. He knows that her cistern is leaky. And he loves her too much to let the truth fester in the dark. And so verse 16, Jesus says to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you have now is not your husband. What you've said is true. And Jesus doesn't compromise here. Like, he loves her enough to go there. 
And he exposes the bitter, unsatisfying waters that she's been drinking from. Maybe this means that she'd been with five men who were, her, were, were husbands to other women. Right? Maybe that's what that means. Or maybe she's been married five different times and now she's living with a man she's not married to. Either way, Jesus doesn't ignore it because there's, they're, they're all symptoms of this bitter toxicity that she's been drinking from. She's rejected the source. She's rejected the true God. And she's hewn out her own ways. She's been ruled by her desire to be known and to be loved and to be accepted and to be protected. But she's rejected the only one who can actually provide those things for her. And she's fallen into the counterfeit embrace of the world. She not only represents the people of Samaria... She represents every last one of us. But for the grace of God, there go I. She represents all who have broken covenant with the true God and King by looking to anything or anyone other than him to fulfill what only he can in Christ. She's the whore of Babylon presented in Revelation who rejects her true husband by indulging in counterfeit saviors all while seducing others into her affair with the world. We saw that in our Revelation series. It got intense. This is the same imagery. This is what shame does. Romans 1 verse 32 says, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Even though she knew her error, she desired the false love and affirmation more than she desired God. And yet... Here he is, and here she is, face to face with the true bridegroom himself. In fact, remember, this is Jacob's well. And if you know the story of Jacob, it's, a, it's beside a well that Jacob meets his bride, Rachel. That's a significant, a significant part of that story. It's not a coincidence. There's a meta-narrative playing out here. It's an underlying redemptive story on display. The woman represents every one of us. She is the prostitute Rahab of Jericho, rescued, by her, her, or rescued from her adulterous life with the enemies of God, yet rescued and grafted into the very covenant family and royal bloodline of Christ himself. She is the widow Ruth of the disinherited Moabite nation who by faith clung to the promises of God's covenant and was redeemed by marriage again and again, Crafted into the covenant family and royal bloodline of Christ himself. She is the wayward whore of Babylon depicted in Revelation. And yet, by receiving the gift of God in Christ and the living waters of the Spirit, she's redeemed and she's re- recreated and she's grafted into the covenant family of God. This is the church, the bride of Christ. This is the gospel. A holy race, a chosen nation, a royal priesthood of all believers. This is what Jesus is offering this woman, and this is what Jesus has offered every single one of us. Again, we are the woman at the well. This is the gospel, that God became a man, and he lived the life we couldn't live, and he died the death that we deserve to die, and he conquered death in the grave, and he paved the way to eternal life, and it's eternal life that starts now, not just one day when we die. The barrier's been broken. The distance has been bridged. He's come to be intimate with us, to indwell us with his spirit, to give us that living water. This is what he's talking about. 
It's this, the river of life flowing from the very throne of God. This is what Jesus is offering. But it requires turning from the bitter and toxic waters of our counterfeit sin and receiving the cup of his grace. Now for the next scene. Jesus jujitsu. <laughs> Verse 19, the woman says to him, like he's just completely read her mail, right, from God. He's just exposed that he sees her. And this is her response. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now, I think there's a little bit lost in translation. I don't think it was quite that formal, right? Um, I think it's probably more like, and, all right, you're not just a random guy, right? So I think here he's offering, what you're seeing here is that he's offering her pure living water, total redemption and eternal life. And she acknowledges here that the, the truth of everything he's saying, but there's still this mountain of distance between them. Jesus has just spoken right to the depth of her, and she tries to dodge it entirely, and she starts talking about theology. Look at verse 20. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Like, if this feels out of place, it's because it is. Right? And yet this is exactly what shame does. This is, it's way easier to externalize God to a system of beliefs rather than to allow him to engage us on a relational, vulnerable, and intimate level. This is empty religion. Shame will make you do all kinds of theological and philosophical gymnastics to avoid being seen and known. So she calls attention to the different religious perspectives that define Samaritans and Jews, and she tries to use that as her reason for pulling, for pulling back. It's like when somebody genuinely is encountered by the grace of God in Christ, right? And then they pull back because they say, well, you know, I, I'm Greek Orthodox. Or, or I'm Catholic. Or I'm some other religious label that they don't really understand. They're just using it in order to put up a barrier so they can hide in their shame. Or hide from their shame. Because it externalizes Jesus to a set of rules or traditions that's comfortable for people who are deeply ashamed. But Jesus doesn't take the bait. He doesn't buy into her misdirection. He sees right through it, and he uses it to lead her right to the heart of God, like some spiritual jujitsu move. <laughs> Watch this. Verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Remember in the Bible, mountains often depict the barrier between God and people. And here Jesus is saying that that barrier is about to be a non-issue. He does still acknowledge that the Samaritans were in the wrong, but he doesn't dwell on it because it's not a real issue anymore. Verse 22, look, he says, You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But... The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The Father is seeking such people to worship him. Look, these mountains are a non-issue. 
And the mountain of separation between this woman and Jesus is a mountain called shame. That's the real issue. That's the real reason she's throwing out all this misdirection. And he's just used it to draw her into the arms of the Father. Remember, he's offered her here living waters and she's still trying really hard to come up with reasons to reject it. Because that's what shame does. The author uh, Ed Welch put it like this. He said, shame is the deep sense that you are inherently flawed, unacceptable, and unworthy of love because of something you've done, something done to you, or something associated with you. Brad Hambrick is a a friend of mine. He's a pastoral counselor, um, and he puts it like this. He says, he, he talks about the difference between guilt and shame. And he says, guilt is like a stain on a shirt. It can be removed by washing it, although it might be difficult to get out. But shame is more like a disfigured face. He says, it feels like a permanent part of who you are now. And if you had a disfigured face, even if the disfigurement had nothing to do with the choices you've made, you still wouldn't want to show your face for fear of what others may do or say in response. So shame is more attached to your identity, right? Shame says, I'm defective. I am damaged. I am broken. I am flawed. It's just who I am. I'm dirty. I'm ugly. I'm impure. I'm disgusting. I'm unlovable. I'm weak. I'm pitiful. I'm insignificant. I'm worthless. And I'm unwanted. That's shame. This is a shame that would have branded the Samaritan woman's entire life. And it's the reason she dodges the offer of living water from Jesus. It's shame. Shame is her greatest obstacle in receiving Christ's living water. And it's the greatest barrier between true repentance for so many people. Think about this. The word for repentance is the Greek word metanoia, and it means to turn away from sin and to turn towards God, right? The truth is, is that what we need to repent of most of all is our rejection of his love. But that's what shame does. To repent of your shame is to repent of your defiance to his delight. Like it's one thing to reject him because you don't want him. But it's a different thing altogether to reject him because you don't think you deserve him. And therefore you reject him because you don't think you deserve him. Of course you don't deserve him. Of course The reason that bothers you is because you're still not over yourself. Of course you don't deserve him. This is not about convincing you that you deserve his love and grace. You don't. This world tries to tell you you do. They're wrong. That's why grace doesn't make sense and it's why people stop their ears towards sin. That's not what you don't deserve his grace. That's what grace is. It's undeserved. This is the power of it all. This is the point. It's not about what you think. It's not about what I think. It's not about you loving you. It's about him. And it's about him loving you. That's what it's about. And some of you in here today, you need to repent of resisting his love. 
You need to repent of your resistance to his call of sonship or daughterhood on your life. Because you're still trying to earn his love. You're still convinced that you don't deserve it and therefore can't or won't receive it. Maybe it feels hypocritical to you, but that's because you still think you can earn it. There's rest in this if you'll receive it. Maybe your idea of Christianity has been primarily motivated by shame. I mean, after all, shame is an effective motivator when it comes to behavior, right? Like, this is how the world operates most of the time. You can get people to act differently using shame. Pretty effective. Like, shame will make you act different, maybe even do better, at least on the surface. But ultimately, it's just a Band-Aid over a bullet wound. And it's a form of empty, false works righteousness and religion. Just empty religion. You see, shame fosters that hireling relationship with God. It's that slave master, employee boss kind of performance-oriented works righteousness mentality, right? And it creates this deep fear of failure and perfectionism because if you fail, you'll come face-to-face with your deepest fear, which is your shame. But if you succeed, then you've proven your shame wrong, which that becomes your salvation, This is a performance mentality. This is works righteousness. And that's why shame and pride are just two different sides of the same coin. It just turns into pride. That's not healing. It's just another cycle on the pride-shame merry-go-round. And it's tormenting your soul. When people live in those kinds of cycles, it only fosters a deep hatred of themselves. And that never-ending sense of self-criticism that will eventually spill out onto everyone around you. That's why people that deal with pride and shame are extremely critical not only of themselves, but everyone around them. But Jesus meets this woman right in the midst of those cycles of torment, and he uses her sense of distance to lead her right to the heart of God. Like he says, all you've prayed is wrong, and all you've claimed is gone. And yet, and yet, the Father is seeking such people. Woo! Wayward people. People who have worshipped on the wrong mountain. People who have been drinking from false fountains of shame and pride. The Father is seeking those who don't know to worship Him in spirit and in truth. The Father is seeking people like you to worship Him. Like he's seeking the wayward, the lost, the broken, the confused, those who have their categories mixed up, those who've lost sight of who he is and run to other lovers. He's seeking them. These are the kinds of people the Father is seeking to worship him. These are the kinds of sheep God leaves the 99 in search of. To rescue them, to redeem them, to take the adulteress and make her a bride, to take the slave and make him a son. This is the gospel. Look at verse 25. The woman then says to him, he says all this stuff, right? And then the woman says to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all these things. She tries to dodge him again. She's still trying to dodge him. And by trying to dodge him, she runs right into him. Right? Right? Like, it's like she's looking for him without looking to him. Again, this is exactly what shame does. 
You can almost imagine her trying so hard to avoid eye contact with him. She knows she needs a hero. She knows she needs to be rescued even from herself. She doesn't need somebody to change the atmosphere around her. She needs somebody to change the atmosphere inside of her. She's got a thirst problem. And Jesus not only has the answer, he is the answer. Look at verse 26. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Guys, this is the cry of my heart as a pastor. This is it. That you go to the source, straight to the source, straight to Jesus. No mediators, no gimmicks, no self-help books, just straight to the source of living water. Because let me tell you something. There's, you're getting no help from anything that's saying, look to me. You, you just won't, unless it's Jesus. The only help you're going to get from anybody are people saying, look to Jesus. That's it. Everything else is just in the way. You understand? Like, this is the power of going to the source. This is what it's all about. This is the cry of my heart, and it's the cry of his heart to go straight to the source of living water. This is why personal prayer, quiet time with Jesus himself in his word, personal worship time every day, it's so important. If you don't have a playlist full of awesome worship songs, get one this week. I'm serious. Dave will help you if, you need some, if you've got some questions. Like, come before his throne and behold his glory and just praise him. Like, to be at peace with him, to adore him, to delight in him, and to let him delight in you. To be true worshipers. You don't need a mountain. You do it in spirit and in truth. The Father is seeking such people to worship him in spirit and truth. Not just here on Sunday and not just in community groups throughout the week. In your room, in your office, driving in your car. Like, move your Bible app in front of your social media app on your phone. Seriously, do that. Like, every time you click on it, it's like, oh, i got to make a choice. It might be helpful. I'm not trying to shame you for going on social media. I'm just saying, let it go. <laughs> go to the point, go to, going to source, like letting his spirit change the atmosphere inside of you drinking deeply of his living water. And when you do, then and only then can you become an overflowing conduit to the world around you that so needs it, needs him. And when you do, it'll just naturally flow out of you, which leads me to the final scene here, the feast of worship. So the disciples come back after going to get some food, right? So they, they go to get some food, and then they come back, and they're like, okay, Jesus is hanging out by himself with a scandalous Samaritan woman. That's different. Right? That's basically what happens. And then verse 28 says, So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. Now there's that theme again. Those who truly meet Jesus introduce others to Jesus. Right? Come and see. Come and see the one who knows me. Come and see the one who actually makes me feel known. I love that she doesn't even say it's the Christ. She says she tries to get them to make up their own mind. Come and see him. Could, could it be him? I think it could be. Come on. I think he is. What do you think? Right? Come and see. Come and meet the one I've been searching for in all the wrong places. And she's not just saying come and see a man who did a miracle. She's saying come and see a man who knows me. 
He sees me. My whole life I've been trying to be seen and to be known and to be affirmed and to be accepted and to be loved, to know and be known, but they're all just broken cisterns and counterfeit saviors. Come and meet the one in whom I fit, the one I was designed for. Come and see the relationship that puts all other relationships in their rightful place. And probably my favorite part of this story is that she left her jar. (laughs) She left it. She didn't even use it. She's there. She's thirsty. It's not an unintentional detail. She never even got any water from the well. She's not thirsty anymore. She has received living water. Like Jesus didn't get a drink either. Remember, he was thirsty. (laughs) But he's not weary anymore either. In some ways, she did give him a drink. In fact, in verse 31, the disciples return and, and they've brought Jesus some food. But in verse 32, he says, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And they're like, did he already eat? Like, is there Wendy's around here we didn't know about? You know? Jesus says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Like he even starts going off on this father's harvest and the fruit of that harvest. And the food he's been eating is the fruit of the Samaritan harvest. It's the fruit of eternal life. He's worshiping as he brings in the harvest of the Samaritans. And it's a feast. Like just doing the will of the father is his feast. To accomplish his work is a feast, and it's filling his soul. And this is the labor, and this is the harvest, and it's the reward in itself. And he's inviting all of us and his disciples into it to enjoy it and to feast on it. Like, it's not so that we can get material things or status or earthly blessings. It's so we can rejoice with God, the Father, when other people experience the love and the grace and redemption that we've experienced. Because they now know the grace and love we now know. Like, this is why the prosperity gospel is so jacked up. Like, we don't give to get things. We do the will of the Father so he, we don't, not so he'll bless us. But in some ways to bless him, and that's a blessing to us. Like, this is the power of it. Like, we do it because we love him, and we love what he loves, and he loves the fruit of the harvest, which is the lost going from death to life, and those far from him becoming his children. That's a feast, man. It's the great commission to make disciples who make disciples. Look how the story ends. Verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Guys, there's nothing like the fruit of this kind of harvest. This is everything. It's the greatest thing you can experience on this side of eternity. And it's the honor we have in partnering together in the gospel. Like, what a, like even when we're weary, you can feast on this. It's the true living water and the bread of life. So like, even when you're weary, be willing to lift your eyes off of yourself to what's around you and what God has for you in the moment. Even when you're willing, weary, be willing. Because he's probably got an appointment for you. 
and a feast. When I think about the most difficult and weary points in ministry in my life, especially in church planting, like there's times when my soul's just like, God, is it even worth it? Not recently. But I, like in those moments, like those moments are real. And I, he's been so merciful and honestly intentional, it seems, that even to just clearly give someone, like someone just gets radically saved. Radically saved. It's like I just, it's like I, I even just, I, God, is it worth it? And he's like, yes, yes, just one, totally worth it, eternally significant, 100%. And what a mercy that he does that. And then now, now go get one more and tell them to go get one more. And then, then one more and one more and one more. How about you build a church like that and then send them to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples and go to the ends of the earth? What a feast. What a feast. And what a reward. This is what it looks like to enjoy the harvest from the Father. Right? He is the good shepherd who leaves the 99 for the lost sheep. This is our feast. This is our worship. This is our commission. This is what we drink deeply of. This is our living water. Let's let it overflow to the world around us. Let's pray.